What a joy to lift up our voices together to the God who hears. I'd invite you to open up your Bible with me to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you or close by you. Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is near the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 8th book of the Bible. Uh, But before we start, I want to take a moment uh, to pray. And this is an exciting time for our church with uh, going into a new season with a new name. But at the same time, it's, um, it's just another weekend. It's another weekend that we can do the same things, seeking our great God who offers the same hope last week as he did uh, this week. But for a lot of churches this weekend, it's actually not a similar weekend. It's a very different weekend. Some of you, especially those of you who have kids, know that you might have to make different plans for your kids tomorrow because some of the educational support workers in public schools are exercising their right to do some uh, strike action and as a result, schools might be canceled tomorrow, but as another result, a lot of churches that meet and rent spaces in public schools aren't able to meet today or have to make other arrangements. And in our church planning network, there's four churches that um, this weekend's a different weekend. Uh, Pastor Ian at Redemption Durham, Pastor Mike in Mar- Harvest Newmarket, uh, Pastor Marvin in Hope Toronto North, and Pastor Kai in Harvest Muskoka. They have, either have to cancel service, join with other churches, or make other arrangements. And we care for these churches. There are churches in Markham, too. I met a gentleman who came uh, today who couldn't attend his church as he wanted to. So before we uh, go into the service and sermon, I want to pray for these churches. You know, we used to rent a school here. We used to rent out of Middlefield. And we're only in this building because another church that was dying gave us this building. God gave us this building, and that's why we were able to meet here. So let's take a moment just to pray for our other brothers and sisters in these other churches who have a different type of weekend meeting in different places. Father in heaven, we're really grateful that we are a part of the Great Commission Collective, Lord God. Thank you for this church planning network and that we are able to join in 150, nearly 150 churches across the world. And God, I pray for our brothers and sisters uh, that can't meet in the same building and the same facility that they anticipated this weekend, uh, Lord. Father, I trust that your will is going to be done. God, wherever they're meeting this weekend, Lord, I pray that the church would still gather, Lord, as much as they are able, that they would still gather and that they would not be discouraged, but that they would gather with faith, with expectation, with hope that you, as your word is preached and your name is glorified, that you will shine your face and transform lives through the preaching of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Would people believe in Jesus, Lord, from Pastor Mike in Newmarket and Pastor Ian in Durham and Pastor Marv in Toronto North and Pastor Kai in Muskoka, Lord God. Would you encourage their hearts? Would they not be discouraged this weekend, but would you strengthen them for the task, Lord? And would you change lives, Lord God? Would your word be lifted high? Would Jesus be exalted? And would people believe on you? And for the churches here in Markham, Lord God, that also aren't able to visit, in the same way, Lord God, would you be glorified? The gates of hell cannot stand against you, let alone a few weekends meeting in a different place. We thank you for the grace of the building that we have here, Lord God. We really struggled, Lord, but you gave us a pastor in Paul Whittingstall. We we had troubles and trials in our network, but you motivated us to go in a new direction with a new name, Lord God. Would we be a source of hope for this community through Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen. Listen to this quote from a best-selling self-help author, Mark Manson. Hopelessness is the root of anxiety. 
mental illness, and depression. It is the source of all misery and the cause of all addiction. This is not an overstatement. Chronic anxiety is a crisis of hope. It is the fear of a failed future. Depression is a crisis of hope. It is the belief in a meaningful future. Delusion, addiction, obsession. These are all the mind's desperate and compulsive attempts at generating hope, one neurotic tick or obsessive craving at a time. Do you need hope? This man who did not, who wrote this quote, does not share our faith. Another maybe simpler, less educated guy came into our building this week when he was replacing some of the signs, taking away the old church name and putting up the signs for the new church name. And this, our, this is the, the sign guy who put up our last signs. And he came in with this new sign and simply said something like, yeah, hope, that's something our world needs, isn't it? It is. Hope is one of the most valuable commodities to the human soul. You can find love in a lot of different places. Sometimes it's hard to grasp. Sometimes it, you lose it quickly, but you could find it again if you could look for it. You can find happiness in a lot of different things. Hope, on the other hand, is valuable because it's so rare. So few people have true, abiding, lasting hope that gives them a meaning for what they're, the way that they're living. It's, it's rare, and it's in such high demand. And there's so many false hopes in this world. Things that look like gold, but it's fool's gold. Things that look like it's a diamond, but really it's just, that's just cubic zirconium, or that, that, that's not a real diamond. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking into the story of the life of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. One of the most treasured stories in all of Scripture. And we're going to see how the Lord, through his redeeming power, brings hope to a woman, a nation, and the world when, when life feels hopeless. Today, we want to understand where we can find hope when we need it most. We're going to just glimpse at the story of Ruth, kind of like peering through a room in a, in a room through a keyhole. And today's message is really going to try and understand, give a topical understanding to what is biblical hope. And in order to be able to find hope when we need it most, we're going to ask and answer four questions today to do that. And here's the first one where we have to start. What is hope? So many want it. So many need it, but what is hope? We need a theological basis, a foundation from Scripture to be able to know what hope is. And if we want to understand hope, it's helpful to understand the life of Abraham. Abraham, father of Isaac, father of Jacob, who fathered the nation of Israel. Abraham is our model of what real faith and real hope look like. The Lord made a promise to Abraham. And Abraham put his hope in that promise. The Lord promised to Abraham that his name would be great, that his family would become a great nation, and that all nations would be blessed through that nation. If you're going to have a family, though, that's as big as a nation, you're going to need at least one kid, right? It's a good starting place. Yeah, but God made this promise to Abraham when he had zero kids, and when he and his wife were 
way past baby-making stage. Like, like way past baby-making stage. Yet Romans chapter 4 verse 18 says this about Abraham's approach to God's promise. Romans chapter 4 verse 18 says, In hope he believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations. In hope he believed against hope. If the world looks at a promise like that, you're past baby-making stage, you have zero kids, and you're going to have a family as big as a nation, the world would look at that and say, that's hopeless. No hope. That's contrary to anything that hope is. But not contrary to God's hope. In God's hope, Abraham believed, contrary to the hopelessness of the world, that God would keep his promises. Hope is the expectation that things will get better because God keeps his promises. That's biblical hope. The expectation that things will get better because God keeps his promises. How does faith, or excuse me, hope work in our lives? How can we actually have this expectation that things get better? Well, like Abraham, hope only works when our expectations keep in step with our faith in God's promises. If our expectations are out of step with God's promises, or trying to keep in step with some other wishful thinking, you're you're not going to have hope. Let's say you don't want to do something nice for your spouse. And you know you won't be into this, and it's not something you want to do at all, but you know your wife will do it, and she'll like it, so you buy beginning dance class for you and your spouse. She'll probably really like that, but you're going to keep your phones in the car so that no pictures are taken during this dance class because you know how you're going to look. And you know you're not really good, and your wife has a little skill at it, so you bought a dance class with a skilled instructor, beginning level, so that you can do something simple that's already choreographed. So you don't need to do, like, some kind of thing, making it up on the fly, but you can follow a set amount of steps to do a dance that someone else already planned. But you do know, guys, is that in classic dance, like ballroom dance and things like that, the guy's got to take the lead. So if your wife is going to have fun, you need to learn the steps, and then you need to accurately, well, take the initiative to lead your wife so that she doesn't stumble over and break her ankle and didn't want to go in the first place anyway. If you're going to do something that's beautiful, she needs to keep in step with you. In the same way, if you're going to enjoy the beauty of hope, your expectations must Keep in step with your faith in God's promises. If your expectations for better are out of step with God's promises or trying to keep in step with wishful thinking that's worldly thinking, your hope will be disappointed. But the good news is that hope can have an expectation that things will get better because God does keep his promises promises. Our God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And if you want to have hope, then 
anchor your hope in what God has promised in his word. And all of God's promises, as 2 Corinthians says, find their yes, find their amen. All of God's promises are fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So if you want to know where to place your hope, where to deposit your hope, where to invest your expectations, put it in what Jesus taught. Put it in how Jesus lived. Put it in what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. Through that, we have a living hope that will not disappoint us, that will not put us to shame. That's hope even if the world says that it seems hopeless. Hope is that expectation, but sometimes we often put it in the wrong things. There are selfish things that we put our hope in. Some of us selfishly put our hope in, I don't know, a bigger paycheck, right? I see the way that all my friends are living and the traveling that they do across the world, and I don't get world vacations because I don't have the money if I only had a better job that paid more. Not something to put your hope in. There are good things, though, that God says are good that sometimes we treat as more of a God than just a good thing. I'm very thankful to the Lord that I have a wife that loves me and two wonderful kids, a boy and a girl. Marriage is a good thing. Children are a good thing. But there is nowhere in the scriptures that God absolutely promises marriage and children. And to put our hopes in good things that God hasn't promised is to make an idol out of that good thing and worship that thing instead of the God who gives the good things. Hope is the expectation that things will get better because God keeps his promises. It's an expectation. There's a sense of assurance in hope that things will get better. That means that like cynicism, nihilism, fatalistic thinking, pessimism, it, it doesn't mix with hope just like oil and water don't mix together. But that doesn't mean that to live with hope means that you need to live with some like peppy optimism, right? Little Orphan Annie sang a beautiful song. Do you remember it from the Broadway musical? I'll suf suffer me by listening to one line of my singing, all right? Or Little Orphan Annie, who just wanted to have a daddy, sang a beautiful song that said, the sun will come up tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Okay, that's not hope. That's wishful thinking, all right? All right? Hope doesn't mean that you need to have this peppy optimism. Doesn't matter that my uh, the ladies at the orphanage abuse me. Doesn't matter that I'm mistreated by my friends. Everything's gonna, that's not hope. And that's not what God asks of you when your health is failing. That's not what God asks of you after a loved one dies. Hope isn't a peppy optimism, but it isn't a sober assurance. It's an assurance that is able to say, like what this song we sang said, it is well with my soul. Hope is the expectation that things will get better because God keeps his promises. Do you need some hope today? And I look at the news and certainly our world needs hope today. So when do we actually need hope? 
This is the second of four questions we want to ask and answer. We know what hope is. Well, when do we actually need hope? Well, now we're going to glance into the life of Naomi and Ruth in the story of Ruth, like looking in a room through a keyhole and see how God dispensed hope to Naomi and to Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 10 to verse 13. Look at it there with me. The passage says, verse 10, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of God has gone out against me. Naomi had lost hope. And though this story is titled Ruth, and Ruth is a prominent character in the story, the main character is actually Naomi. And it follows her trial, her tragedy, her suffering, and her redemption. But what's happening here? We kind of jumped into chapter 2, and we missed chapter 1. This story is about Naomi and her wife, her husband, Elimelech. Naomi and Elimelech were citizens of Israel, God's chosen people. But they left their home in Israel in the city of Bethlehem and went to the country of Moab, which was actually a foreign country that were enemies of God and God's people. Why would you go from God's chosen land with God's chosen people to a place where there are enemies? Well, because there was a really bad famine happening in Israel. Because it was the time of the judges. A tumultuous time in Israel's history when people didn't follow God's way and God's law. They sinned and did whatever was right in their own eyes. And the best of their leaders were really the worst of people. And because of their sin during that time, God put a curse on the land and there was a famine. So they didn't want to, but they had to leave their homeland. That seems like a time for hope. But it gets worse for Naomi. As soon as they get into a foreign land, her husband Elimelech dies. And she needs someone to take care of her. Because in an agrarian society in ancient times like this, uh, men were really the primary caregivers, providers for their family. But it's okay because Naomi has two sons, Malon and Chilion. Guess what? They die too. Oh, but just before that, Malon and Chilion marry two Moabite people. So they're part of the family now too. But when they die, now there's no one to provide for the family except for the oldest person, Naomi, who's probably too old to be able to provide and now has two dependent women that she needs to care for. I think that's a time when you need hope. Hope for better is needed because sin has made all things bad. This is the time and this is the reason that we need hope. Because sin has broken the goodness in the world that God created us to be able to enjoy. There are a lot of causes that the world looks at when they see hopelessness, when they see brokenness. And the world has a lot of their own answers for how they think they can cure hopelessness. The sociologist might say, we're too lonely and we need more community. 
The scientists might say, we're too primitive and we need more technology. The economists might say, we're too poor. We need more prosperity. The philanthropists might say, we're too selfish. We need more generosity. The humanists might say, we're too uneducated and we need more opportunity. The activists might say, we're too oppressed and we need more equality. And these are all genuine concerns in the world that contribute to our hopelessness. But I wonder, are these perspectives actually curing the disease or only managing the symptoms? What makes you feel hopeless? Maybe you've achieved everything you dreamed of when you were in high school. You graduated from the university you want to with honors. You got a prestigious internship at a place where dozens of other people wanted to get in. And then you made your way up to a senior level position to get the paycheck you wanted. Then you got a spouse that you wanted and the home that you wanted and the kids that you wanted and the summer home that you wanted. And you've made everything that you've wanted. You've got it. But it still feels like you're lifting a bowling ball off your bed each morning and dragging it around each day, trudging along like all of these things you achieved aren't actually satisfying my soul and don't really give me meaning. Maybe you feel hopeless because you've been stuck in the same addictive behaviors for years. And you've tried and tried and tried with all the different ways and all the different methods, but it's still the same and it's still painful. Maybe you're hopeless because you've been tried to have a relationship, but it's never worked. Maybe you're hopeless because things, bad things just seem to happen to you. And, and they happen to you to agree to a, they happen to you in a degree and to a scale, just like they don't happen to other people. That's not fair. Are we going for the disease, curing the disease, or are we just managing symptoms? Christianity teaches that the cause of all the suffering and the chaos in the world is a result of sin. See, God created the world good, and there was harmony, and there was peace. It was paradise when God created the world. And that harmony and peace and paradise would have been enjoyed in relationship with God as long as humanity kept following God's good way. But we, the human race, decided that we were not content to follow God. We wanted to be like God. We sinned. We disobeyed. And because of our sin, we are separated from a holy, perfect God. Because of our sin, the world is cursed. And because of our sin, we are separated from God's goodness, and the world is stained with all sorts of bad. And because of our sin, we're hopeless. So the cure then to our hopelessness is to find a solution to our sin so that we can be reunited to God in his good presence. Our hope is ultimately anchored in the good news of Jesus Christ who made a way so that we could be forgiven of our sin. There's a cost for our sin. There's a punishment for our disobedience. But Jesus suffered for our sin when he died on the cross so that we could be saved from our sin and then reunited into relationship with God. And that's where you can find hope. Put your hope, let your expectations follow your faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But even still in this world, we're still going to experience sin. We're still going to experience suffering. But the great hope that we have 
isn't ultimately here in this world, that things will get better in this world. The great hope that we have is that God is making all things new. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Set your hope fully on the revelation to be given, on the grace to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on what God's going to give when Christ returns from heaven to earth. Because when Jesus comes back, he's making all things new. All the former things, all the bad things, all the sin things are passing away. And we will be in paradise with him again. Don't put your hope in false things. Fool's gold, cubic zirconium. There is rich hope by faith in Jesus Christ. Hope for a better thing is needed because sin makes all things bad. But we have a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And even though you can't see it now because of the curse of sin that has stained this world and the chaos and the suffering that we experience, a new world is coming. Put your hope in Christ. but you might know these things well. You might hear me speaking passionately about these things, and you know them intellectually, but you feel them passion with no passion. And it's like, okay, I know this, but how can I have this? How can I have the, I know the reality of hope, but I don't have the sense of hope. How can I have the sense of this assurance that things will get better today? Where can we find hope? That's the third question we want to answer. When a painter sits down to paint a picture, and she's painting over canvas, what she first does is stretches the canvas over four frames, and then nails or staples the canvas to the frame so that it's secure, so that it's smooth, so that it's held together. And when the canvas is stretched and affixed to four frames, she can then paint a beautiful picture. In the same way, Our expectations need to keep in step with our faith in God's promises. And our faith needs to really be framed around four truths about God and his character. And if you want to see your expectations keep in step with faith in God's promises, these are four things you can put your faith in today so that you can see hope actually start to make, so that you can see hope Find a home in your heart. What are these four things that we can believe in? Well, first, hope is found in God's faithful love. Frame your hope around God's faithful love. Let's glimpse into the story of Ruth again at Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Ruth chapter 2, verse 20 says, And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What's happening here? We kind of skipped from chapter 2 to chapter 4, so let me fill in the gaps. After her her family dies, she tells her daughters-in-law, like, don't follow me, I can't take care of you. One goes home, one follows her, Ruth. And then she goes back to Bethlehem. And her friends see her, and he's like, is this Naomi? Like, she's so depressed, and she's so bereaved that they barely even recognize her. And she tells her, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi is the Hebrew name that means pleasant. Mara is the Hebrew name that means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Is she angry at God? 
Is she doubting God's goodness here? It kind of sounds like that, but not quite. As I was studying the passage this week, I came across an author who uh, wrote this. The name, man's name is Thomas Schreiner, and he says this. She does not maintain that her sufferings are the result of her sin, nor does she argue that what happened to her was outside of God's control. The Lord brought calamity upon her. His hand was stretched against her. He made her bitter. Yet Naomi was not suggesting that the Lord was defiled by anything, any evil in what he did to her. The Lord was just and good despite the evils that Naomi experienced from his hand. The Lord remained king even in the most uh, difficult times. She trusted that God was good even though he had dealt bitterly with her. The famine was a result of sin, certainly. The deaths of her family don't seem to be results because they've done something wrong. They were just the chaos of a broken world. But, but look also at Ruth chapter 1, verse uh, 13. Excuse me, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. I just read Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. Ruth chapter 2, verse 20 says this. And Naomi said to her daughter, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. See, after she goes back home and she tells, say, change my name because I'm so bitter, then Ruth is like, okay, well, if Naomi can't take care for me, I'm going to have to care for myself. And she goes into a field and of a man named Boaz. And she allow, Boaz allows her to be able to collect barley and wheat from the field. And, and then she comes back home with this, like, amazing, like, amount of food. And Naomi's saying, like, where did you get this from? And, and Ruth says, I got it from Boaz. And Ruth's response was, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi remembered that even in the midst of her suffering, God was still kind. Kind to her who was alive and even apparently kind to her husband who had, who had died. And this word kindness is really unique. You know, it wasn't a kindness like I pass you in the grocery store and accidentally catch eyes with you and need to do something, so I just smile and then move on. It's not, that's, not, that's not the kindness that this means. This kindness is a unique Hebrew word. And I've already sung for you, and that was probably bad enough for your ears. I'm not going to try and recite a Hebrew word. But this word kindness is also translated in other passages of Scripture, specifically the Psalms, steadfast love. Like the Psalms that say, his steadfast love endures forever. This steadfast love of God is the love of God, the special love of God, that in the same way that a husband has a special love for his wife, or a wife has a special love for her husband. It's exclusive and unique to that relationship. This steadfast love is the love that God has for his people when he chooses them and sets his heart on them and says, I'm never leaving you or forsaking you, no matter what happens to you, no matter what sin you do, you're mine and I love you. That is the love that Naomi recognizes. That's the love that allows her to have hope. That's the love that God has towards us. The same love that Romans chapter 8 says when it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The same love that the Psalms says as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. You can have hope. 
Because no matter what, what your trial you're going through or sin you're addicted to or chaos that has caused suffering in your life, you can know that God loves you. Let your expectations keep in step with your faith in God's love for you. We can find hope in God's faithful love for us. We can find hope also knowing that God's good control over all things. Hope is found also in God's good control over all things. You know, when suffering happens, um, we ask hard questions. Questions of why. Why did this happen to me? Why did my parents have to get cancer? Why was I fired? Why am I struggling to have children? Why am I still stuck in this sin? Naomi was probably asking questions like that. Why did my husband have to die? Why did my sons have to die? Why, why did this happen? But as I read earlier in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, she recognized that God's hand brought these things, but she didn't say that God was wrong for bringing these things against her. It's really hard to reconcile these two ideas in the time of suffering, that God is good and God is in control. How, if he's in control, can he do something like this that's so bad? How can he be good and in control? It doesn't if you're struggling to see the reality of God's control and God's goodness in the midst of suffering, I would invite you to look to the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus suffered worse than any other human being has ever suffered. He suffered worse than any other human being because he was tortured by wicked men and executed in one of the worst ways humanity has ever devised torture. But not only that, he suffered because he, the wrath of God, he suffered the wrath of God in our place. But he did it willingly. And he did it because the Father willed him to do it. The suffering was so bad, but God was in control in it. And he allowed it because it was the only way that the good of our salvation and eternal life could be given as a gift of grace to the world and to those who believe in him. And you and are, might be wrestling this with... Christianity allows us to wrestle with the weight of our hopelessness. And at the cross of Christ, we see both divine goodness and terrible suffering, so that in the midst of our suffering, we can know that God is good, he is in control, and he's working all things together for good. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who call to according to his purposes. But you might be in it right now and say, like, how could this be for good? Romans chapter 5 says that we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 verse 18 reminds us that even though we're suffering now, we have the hope of paradise awaiting for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this world, of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can actually have hope when your faith keeps in steps with these truths. That God is love. That God is good and in control. Here's another frame that you can stretch hope around to hold secure. 
Hope can be found also through God's faithful people. See, you can be a vehicle through which God dispenses his hope to others. Ruth was. Why is, why is this story titled after Ruth and not her other step-sister, uh, Orpah? Remember, Naomi had two daughters-in-law who married her two sons, Orpah and Ruth. Why is this titled after Ruth and not Orpah? Because when the going got tough, Orpah left and did not show Naomi love. But when the going got tough, Ruth stayed. And her love for Naomi that reflected God's love from Naomi allowed God, God used that to be able to give hope to Naomi. You know, Boaz showed kindness to uh, Ruth and allowed her to get all this food from his field. And he eventually married her. But you know, there was someone based on the laws of the day who was one place before him, who should have all done all those things before him. We don't even know that dude's name. We just know that he had a chance to marry Ruth, and he didn't. We had a chance, he had a chance to buy Naomi's field to provide food for her, and he didn't. Because when the opportunity came, he was more interested in his self-interests. But we remember Boaz, and we don't remember the name of this guy, because Boaz is worth remembering. Because, because of his love, God used that to dispense his hope to Naomi and Ruth. And in the same way, you may have hope today. And that's great. Hope isn't something to keep for yourself. Hope is something that cascades into the lives of others when we show God's love to them. You can be a vehicle of hope for others. Hope is found in God's faithful love, God's good control, through God's faithful people. But ultimately, hope is found in God's only Son. Turn to the very last verse of, the, of the Ruth. Ruth 4, verse 18 to 22. Because, you see, this isn't just a story of hope for a, one woman or for one family. It's a story of hope for a, full na- a whole nation. It's a story of hope for the whole world. Now, this passage that I'm going to read might seem, kind of, might seem kind of meaningless. It's just a list of names. But to the first people who first read these list of names, it was like a light bulb moment. Wow. So let's read it and we'll see that light bulb moment. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Wow, already feels boring. Let's keep going though. Aminadab fathered Hez- uh, Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Not Salmon. Salmon. <laughs> Salmon fathered Boaz. Uh Okay, I recognize that name, Boaz, the guy who married Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed. That's the son of Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Oh. Wait, like David, the guy who killed Goliath? Like David who became the man after God's own heart, who was the king of Israel, who brought stability after a time of turmoil? You mean David, the one who God promised gave a promise that he would have a son who would eventually be king over not just the nation of Israel, but be the king that all of their kings would bow down to and reign over the whole world? Yeah, that David. And who's his son who would reign over the whole world who came from his family line? Jesus of Nazareth. Because God showed hope to Naomi and her her immigrant daughter-in-law, Ruth. Hope was restored for a family. Hope was restored for a nation. Hope is available for the world. 
We can find hope through Jesus Christ. And when you have faith in him, he allows you to have this expectation that things will get better. The peace that even through your suffering, God is not against you. God is for you. God is good. And he's in control. So here's the last question we want to ask to close our time together. We know where we can find hope. We know why we need hope. We know what hope is. But when we have hope, what difference does it make in my life? How will hope actually make things better? If hope is the expectation that things will be better because God keeps his promises, how will things be better? Four ways that the story of Ruth shows us how hope makes things better. Hope redeems the broken. Naomi's family line was gone. No men left to be able to have more children. The family line was dead. That meant that her inheritance in the promised land couldn't be taken care of. Her share in the promised land, her family was gone. Broken. But then when Boaz stepped in and gave Ruth a child, and Boaz bought the land and took care of the land, the inheritance of the family was redeemed. And you may feel like your life is broken and in tatters. You may feel like you have no future. Like your welfare is, 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 is just broken. In Christ, your future is redeemed. In Christ, your, what you think is broken can be redeemed and restored. The broken is restored through hope. Not only that, hope renews the lifeless. The book of Ruth is one of the most artistically excellent piece of ancient artworks in all of ancient literature. It's a beautiful, beautifully written, and there's this wonderful contrast of the beginning and the end. At the beginning, it starts in a famine. In the end, it comes the harvest. At the beginning, there's a funeral. In the end, there's a birth announcement. Hope renews the lifeless, and your soul may feel like it's in the grave. Like there's no meaning to the way that I'm living my life. Hope renews that. Hope gives you a reason to get your head off the pillow in the morning. Hope gives you the confidence that when your head goes on the pillow at the end of the day, that it was worth it. Hope renews the lifeless, redeems the broken. Hope welcomes the lost. See, Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth was a Moabite. She was an enemy. But this beautiful, artistically written piece of literature is written in such a way that shows how well she was once an outsider, but became an insider. And you can see that through the pronouns and the words that are attributed to Ruth and how that changes throughout the story. At first, she's a Moabite, just the foreign enemy. But then she is a daughter-in-law. And then with Boaz, she's a maidservant. And a woman with her recognizing her own identity. And then she's a wife. A part of the family. She was once an outsider. But now she's an insider. She was once lost. But now she's found. And that's what hope can do for you. You are not alone. You are loved. And by faith in Jesus you are welcomed as a part of the family. And you have a father in heaven who loves you. Hope redeems the broken, renews the lifeless, welcomes the lost. Hope fills the empty. Naomi left with two sons, and she came back with none. And when she saw her friends, she said, call me bitter, don't call me pleasant. Because I came back full, I left full, and I came back empty. But amazingly, after Ruth provided her a grandson, her friends looked at her and saw a change in her disposition. She said, 
this woman who you love, Ruth, and the child that she gave to you, you love them more than even if you had seven sons. She received a fullness from the Lord that was greater than her own biological children could have even given because God gave hope. God redeems the broken, renews the lifeless, welcomes the lost, fills the empty. Do you need hope? Let your expectations for better. Keep in step with God's promises, knowing that he is love, knowing that he is good, knowing that there are faithful people he can use to help you, and knowing that it's all through his only son. Believe this, and you can have this hope. Do you need it today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the hope that we have, the living hope that we have through Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I praise you, Lord God, that through faith in Jesus Christ, this is the inheritance that we have. It's waiting for us. It's available to us. Thank you for the treasure of hope, Lord God. Lord, I would pray for our, my friends your church, that we would, you would strengthen our faith, Lord God. Strengthen our recognition of the beauty of your word and your promises so that we can have confidence that by faith in what you've promised, we can have hope. And allow us to be a church that dispenses your hope to this world through the love we can show to them in Christ Jesus. Thank you today that we can now remember what Christ has done for us through communion, Lord God. I praise you, Lord for the death that you died and for the life that you were raised to so that we can live through you. In Jesus' name, amen.